You know, we take for granted these Sunday evenings the amazing music that the choir contributes to our services, and I think we should take the opportunity to thank them. You can see any of these guys afterwards. Do thank them for the good work that they do. But also this evening, I want you to see the kind of risks that we subject them to. Because they're up there, they're in danger of something happening to them that happens in the text. See if you can work it out as we go through this evening. There's a piece of acerbic wit that says, you know how some people talk in their sleep? A preacher is someone who talks in other people's sleep. And I always wondered where that notion came from, but it seems it may very well have come from the story or part of the story of this little section of the book of Acts. Now, it's not hard to see what's on the apostle's mind. Before we get to there, let's look at it in context. What's on the apostle's mind? Really, if you look at verse 21 of chapter 19, which is really the beginning of a section, and then at chapter 20, verse 16, I think you can see what is on his mind. So let me read it to you. Verse 21 of chapter 19. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying... After I've been there, I must also see Rome. If you haven't been to Rome, you need to see Rome. It's worth seeing. Paul thought so. I've been there. I think so. And I recommend it to you. His ultimate goal then is to get to Rome. But in order to get to Rome, first of all, he feels this pressing need to go to Jerusalem. You find that at the end of the section, which is in chapter 20, verse 16. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Now one of the things that strikes you when you read this uh, language that's used here of the, of the Apostle Paul is the striking similarity to his, uh, his experience and that of the Lord Jesus. Like the Lord Jesus, Paul was often, if not always, accompanied by a group of disciples, people that he trusted, and you have a long list of their names of some of these people here in chapter 20 in the section we just read. Like Jesus, Paul was opposed by a group of unbelieving Jews who plotted to take his life. Like Jesus, Paul had been warned by three predictions that to go to Jerusalem would be to put himself in danger. Like Jesus, Paul had declared his readiness to die, to give his life for the Lord Jesus. Like Jesus, he was determined to finish the ministry that God had given to him and not be deflected from it one way or the other. Like Jesus, he expressed his abandonment to the will of God. Now, Luke knows that when we're reading this, he's going, we're going to notice what you, we have just noticed. You've already noticed them. I'm just putting into words what was already on your mind, I'm sure. You notice these parallels. And Luke knew we'd see these parallels because he saw these parallels in the life of the apostle and in the life of Jesus. And they're quite deliberate in the structure of the book of Luke-Acts. Remember, it's one book. Luke-Acts is one book. In the structure of that book, what we discover is that the apostles' ministry is an extension of Jesus' ministry. Not just that they were doing what you and I do. We carry on the work of Jesus in the world today. Not in that sense, but in a far tighter, far more specific, far more theological sense, 
What the book of Luke Acts teaches us is that Jesus hasn't finished his work until the apostles are dead. And until the apostles have done the business of getting the gospel out of Jerusalem to Rome. In other words, out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Signified by getting from Jerusalem to Rome. And here we find Paul in the movement towards that ultimate goal. Now this teaches us right at, right at the very beginning this evening that the book of Luke Acts, and especially the book of Acts, is not about us, it is for us. You know, many Christians, when they come to the book of Acts, they think to themselves, what am I to learn for me? First of all, that's where, where we begin. We, we begin by wanting the application for ourselves. But in fact, what we're meant to see primarily is that it's about Jesus. It's about his unique work that he did in fulfilling his promise to get the gospel out to Jerusalem and to the world. Jesus makes this great prediction right at the beginning of Luke Acts in which he says, you will be my witnesses. Using the language of Isaiah, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. These apostles in the book of Acts fulfill that prediction of Jesus at that point. And that's why the church has always seen the close identification between Jesus and the apostles. That's why the church universally professes that it is one holy apostolic church. Now, with that kind of stuff in your head, or not, as the case may be, you're upstairs, be careful. That in your head, let's look at how this kind of story develops here, because I think what we have here is a kind of demonstration of Christ at work through the apostles here. Let me put it like this. First of all, here we have the apostles demonstrating the love of Christ for the church's welfare. The apostles are demonstrating the love of Christ for the church's welfare. I wonder what you look for in someone wanting to go into any kind of Christian service. Maybe you look for specific gifts. Maybe you look for character, praise, or, or for life experiences. But I wonder whether, above all, you look for love. I remember when I was being interviewed, I was uh, 17, 17 or 18, going on 18. I felt I was 50. I was grown up and should be taken seriously. And I remember being taken into this room, and there were about 50 people there, and uh, they were very awesome people. They were ministers and elders from churches, and their job was to examine me as to whether or not I was a suitable person for them to accredit, to be an accredited candidate for the Christian ministry. And I'd written my papers, and they'd read them, and, and now was the official interview and they asked me some very stupid questions and, uh, and some asked me some theological questions trying to trip me up. But the one question that stuck, well actually two questions stuck in my head. One was from the principal of the, the theological college in which he was rubbishing my views on the Lord's death and what that meant. But we're not going down there today. I'll tell you that story another time. But the other question that stuck in my mind was from a man that I subsequently got to know quite well. He asked me, I was 17. He said, Liam, do you love the church? He said, do you love the people in the church? 
But I'm asking you generally, do you love the church? I remember at the time, this is, what, this is what went through my head at the time. What a stupid question. I, like, and I was not prepared for that question, let me tell you. But it made me think. In fact, I've thought about it for the rest of my life. And I'll give you the answer. I think the answer then is the same as the answer today. I love the church. I love the church because Jesus loved the church. And if you get to know Jesus, you can't help but love Jesus' people. I mean, that's what it says, doesn't it, in Ephesians. He loved the church and gave himself up for her. And when you look at the story of the Apostle Paul, you find that Paul loved the church so much that he willingly and joyfully gave himself up for her welfare. And in this he imitated his Lord. That's why he wants to go to Jerusalem via Macedonia and Achaia. That's why he says in chapter 24, 17, I came to bring alms to my nation. He came bringing offerings from Gentile congregations as a concrete expression of the church's unity, spanning demographic and geographic distances. He wanted to demonstrate the church's unity and love for the people of God. Uh, the period of time that's covered in these two chapters is quite a long section. It's, it's merely, we're merely being told the high points in the narrative here. And packed into the language, there's a wealth of experience. Many months of arduous travel. He wasn't traveling by plane. He wasn't traveling by luxury coach. He wasn't traveling in a nice limousine. He is going by foot. He is going over mountains. He's going by sea in very difficult circumstances on occasion. These are arduous journeys, but he's doing them in a context in which people are plotting against him. There are all the usual hazards of robbers. There's the emotional strain that he must have been going through, wondering uh, about what lay ahead of him. When we get to chapter 20, do you notice it begins after the uproar, there had been a riot in Ephesus. I don't know if you've ever been part of a riot. I've seen a bit of a riot in Northern Ireland, the Irish riot all the time, but, but uh, this was a real riot in which things were being thrown and I turned a corner, I saw some of this going on, I turned the corner back again and went in the opposite direction. But I've seen a little bit of what a riot looks like, but it's a terrifying experience and there had been a riot in Ephesus and he had left there and he'd headed for Macedonia and Achaia. He'd expected to pick up from some friends there like Titus, but Titus didn't come. And finally, when they did eventually meet, they were they were going to they made two visits to Corinth, one of which lasted for three months. And the goal behind these visits was not only to encourage and strengthen the believers there so that they might take a stand for God and be effective in their lives. But also, he wanted to encourage them to give to him money that he could take back with him to Jerusalem where there was famine, where the believers there were suffering because not only of famine, but because the authorities were against them and weren't giving them a helping hand. And the believers were impo impoverished 
and he encourages the Gentile Christians. He says, wouldn't it be an act of amazing love to your Jewish believing brothers and sisters if Gentile believers would send something with me to them for me to share with them. And by the way, Paul has a very great passion for probity in all of this. Whenever he handles funds, he makes sure that the church that gives the money sends a representative with him to make sure that the money is delivered to the people it's intended to be given to. And that's what you find him doing here. He loves the church. And in the course of loving the church, he suffers for the church. James Denny, in his, one of his books, says this, Suffering for the Christian is not an accident. It is a divine appointment and a divine opportunity. To wear out life in the service of Jesus is to open it to the entrance of Jesus' life. These repeated es escapes, these restorations of courage, are manifestations of that life. They are, so to speak, a series of resurrections. We find Paul demonstrating the love of Christ for the church's welfare. I want to ask whether we love the church. I get really irritated by people who complain about the church. They obviously don't understand that the church... If they're a member, they're part of the church. If they're complaining about the church, they're complaining about themselves. This church doesn't love, or this church isn't friendly, or this church doesn't do this, or that, or the other thing, or this church fails in this area, or that area. I want to kneecap them. Christ loves the church. Do you know who you're talking about if you talk, about the if you talk down the people of God? You're talking about yourself, but you're also talking about those who are the apple of Jesus' eye. He loved the church. Paul demonstrates the love of Christ for the church's welfare. Then secondly, in this section, Paul demonstrates the centrality of Christ in the church's worship. The centrality of Christ in the church's worship. Did you notice in this little section, we have a kind of thumbnail sketch of a typical church service or Lord's Day, a day like today. And we find, what do we find in that typical Lord's Day? Well, we find the Christians celebrating the Lord's resurrection, remembering the Lord's death, and proclaiming the Lord's message. Look at those Three things. First of all, we find the believers on the first day of the week, look at verse 7, when they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech till midnight. Now, don't worry about the prolonging his speech till midnight. I've got, given myself a, a deadline. I just won't tell you what it is. <laughs> but I want you to notice this is the first day of the week. Now, what do we know about the first day of the week? Don't answer, I'll tell you. We know that Jesus rose again, don't we? The first day of the week was the day of resurrection. What is the biblical theological significance of the first day of the week? Well, looking at the overall, the big story of the Bible, the real significance is this, that Christ achieved by his obedience what Adam failed to achieve by his disobedience. 
Christ achieved by his obedience what Adam failed to achieve by his disobedience. Because what did Christ achieve in his life, in the week of his life? In the week of his life, Christ achieved resurrection from the dead. In other words, the approval of God. The resurrection in New Testament language is God's justification of Jesus. You see, if we're Christians here tonight, we're justified by what? We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But Jesus was not justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus was justified the way Adam would have been justified. That is, he was justified by works. That's why when you read the Gospels, the Gospels are not just, they don't just look, they don't just kind of clearly relate how they relate to us. They're all about Jesus. They're all about all the ways in which Jesus was absolutely not like us. All the ways in which Jesus is not relevant to us. Why? Because in every point in Jesus' life in the Gospels, he is absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. He keeps the law of God. He pleases God. His heart is to please God. In all of his actions and words he pleases God. He represents God perfectly. He does everything we don't do. You read the life of Jesus, it destroys you. If someone says to you, this is what Christianity is about, it's about wearing something round your wrist that says, what would Jesus do? If that's, if that's the message of Christianity, there's absolutely no gospel at all. Because if I've got to live like Jesus lived, in order to be right with God, I am crushed, I am destroyed. It is impossible to do that. If I'm going to be right with God, I have to trust in Jesus who did obey God actively in his life and who obeyed God in his death by dying my death and taking my punishment. So in the week of Jesus' life, he obeys God every day and then he enters into the Sabbath rest of God. He enters into the Sabbath of resurrection and everlasting life. Jesus finishes the work the Father gave him to do. Now remember the original creation. Let's put it like this. Here's the original creation. What happens? God creates in the seven days. God creates everything there is. And then on the seventh day, God rests. So Israel is meant to remember that God has created and God rested from the work of creation. Now Jesus comes into the world and he obeys God and he dies and rises again. He enters into the Sabbath rest. His death finishes his obedience. That day he is with God in paradise. In other words, God on that, on that Sabbath uh, morning, or as Jesus dies on that Friday, God's wrath is turned away, God's law is satisfied, God's love is displayed, Jesus finishes the work the Father gave him to do. Next day, he's with the Father. And for Jesus, there is rest. Today, he's now seated. At the right hand of God. He doesn't have any more work. He doesn't have to die over again and over again and over again. 
That's why we don't celebrate the Mass here. We don't re-offer Jesus again and again and again and again and again as if Jesus has to go on and on and on doing his work. He's finished. He's done all that needs to be done. And the work of new creation has begun. He rose on that first day. And the Spirit came on the first day as an indication that a new creation had begun. And we're part of that new creation. And we've been given a task to do in this new creation, just as Adam was given. Our task is, just as Adam's task was, to extend the borders of God's kingdom until it fills the whole earth. That was Adam's task. He was to extend Eden. He was to produce, multiply, and produce children. Those image bearers were to work with him to extend the borders of Eden until it filled the whole earth. And then presumably, as Adam obeyed and as his, as his progeny obeyed God, they would have been given resurrection bodies and would have entered into the Sabbath rest of God. Now today we Christians, we already have rest in Christ. But, but the, the future, the ultimate, the, the fullness of that rest is still to come. So the writer to the Hebrews says, you already have rest, but there remains yet a rest for the people of God. So when we meet in the, meet in the first day of the week, we're meeting on the day of resurrection. We're meeting in the first day of the new creation. We're being reminded we're still at work. We're still at work. We're resting in Christ, but we're still at work. Our Sabbath... The Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. Still in the future, our rest, ultimate rest, remains. So we come week by week, we come together on the Lord's Day, we come to celebrate this new creation, and we look forward to the completion of Christ's work for us. From the very earliest days, Christians came together on the Lord's Day to celebrate what God had done in Christ. Justin Martin, Martyr rather, writing in the second century, described how Christians worshipped. On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Sunday is the day on which we hold our common assembly, because Jesus, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. So the Lord's Day is a day of Christian worship. It's the day we gather to remind ourselves of all that Christ has done and to come to the Word of God and to let God address us as his people. So celebrating the Lord's resurrection, remembering the Lord's death. The other Christians often, because they had to meet after work, Monday was a work day, it wasn't a holiday, it was a work day, and after supper they would come to. After work they would come together, and they'd have a kind of a potluck supper, and then they would move out of that into their formal service. They'd sing a hymn or, or whatever. They would have readings from the scripture. They would uh, have a sermon. Uh, they would break bread. That is, they would have the Lord celebrate the Lord's supper. The amazing thing is, at that table, and as they were eating, slaves would sit down with their masters at the same table. It was unheard of in that day. The seeds of the abolition of slavery began right from the very beginning of the Christian church. Celebrating the Lord's resurrection, remembering the Lord's death, and then proclaiming the Lord's message. Because from the birthday of the Christian church, 
on the day of Pentecost, we know that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We know the word of God was always declared at Christian assemblies. They read the Old Testament scriptures. To begin with, that's the only scriptures they had. And then as time went on, they began to get these copies of letters of the apostles, and they read them, and they held them of, as equal, in equal regard as they did the Old Testament scriptures. So Peter can refer to Paul's letter as scripture, the word of God, written. So the word of God heard became the word of God written, became the word of God expounded, it became proclaimed, it was proclaimed to people. So that the apostle can say to Timothy before he dies, preach the word, be urgent, in season and out of season, give attention to teaching the word of God, demonstrating the centrality of Christ in the church's worship. And then, thirdly and lastly, demonstrating the power of Christ through the church's witness. This is where we come to verses 8 to 14, where we read about a young man who fell asleep in church. He wasn't the last to do that. When I was at seminary, the story is told, I I certainly wasn't conscious, so can't confirm or deny this, but the story is told that during one of the morning chapel services, one of the students fell asleep. It became very apparent that he had fallen asleep. Uh, I've never been told just how, why that was apparent, but, but apparently it was. And as they reached the end of the service, uh, the principal, or one of the lecturers, got up and said, Mr. Golliger had a busy day yesterday preaching some far-flung place in Northern Ireland. I think we should just leave him alone and slip out quietly. So when I awoke, hoping that the sermon at least would be finished, nobody was there. And it's become one of the urban myths of the seminary. Well, I just want to say to you tonight, don't fall asleep in this sermon, because what comes next can't happen here. The story is told very matter-of-factly. There's no hype. The miracle is treated as a brief temporary interruption in the main business of the church. It's quite straightforward. The boy was gradually overcome by the stuffiness of the room. In spite of the fact of being near the good ventilation, he was on the window, for heaven's sakes. Window, by the way, would go from floor to ceiling. It would be a, uh, a window. There would be no windowsill as such. Uh, this whole idea of stuffy buildings. I mean, I have been in churches that were very stuffy, both physically and metaphorically stuffy. Couldn't comment on this one, and that's in that area. But uh, it reminds me of the story of C.H. Spurgeon, who was a great preacher, a great Baptist preacher in London, and he, he became really famous at the age of 18 when he started preaching in London, and crowds and crowds and crowds of people came to hear them, and, and packed into the, the church, little New Park Street chapel where he was the minister. They packed the place from floor to ceiling. People were every, every piece of spare ground they were there in this church. And at some, st- uh, some point in the past, the windows of the church had been sealed to prevent anyone 
breaking and entering or getting into the buildings. And it got stuffery and st people were just about passing out. The preacher was just about passing out. And Spurgeon would say to the office bearers of the church, we should be doing something about these windows. And they did nothing. They did nothing. It went on and on and on. Weeks, months passed. They did nothing about these windows. And then one day they came in on a Sunday morning and somebody had gone round and systematically broken all the window panes, removed all the glass. It was an amazing thing. Spurgeon, Spurgeon started the service and he said, we must give thanks to God for the amazing providence that has occurred in this week. The office bearers, who were a lot older than Spurgeon at 18, were not amused. And uh, in his autobiography, Spurgeon tells this story. And he says, I, I, I couldn't divulge the, person, the name of the person who did this atrocious act when I was younger, and nor can I divulge his name now. But I've had many a long and enjoyable walk with a walking stick that did the dreaded business. Well, I have to make a confession to you. I've never ever done that, but I have hidden, I have hidden a dreadful hymn book in the loft of a church and never told them where they are to this day. They probably still wonder where those books went. They just disappeared. So something really massively disappears. <laughs> you better ask me first. Anyway, let's get back to the thing here. Luke tells a story and he tells us how this guy fell and was dead. Luke is a doctor and you notice Luke is here. You always know where Luke is in the book of Acts because he tells us. He uses the word we. We sailed, we were, went, we did, we were gathered, so on. He kind of, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to intrude too much. So he just kind of tells you I was there to see all of this that happened. And it's told in this matter of fact way. The guy fell, he was dead. Paul goes downstairs, stops his sermon, goes downstairs, rushes down like Elijah and Elisha, performs a miracle of resuscitation, which puts Paul alongside these great Old Testament characters. And Jesus, by the way, Jesus who had raised people like this from the dead. And Elisha and Elijah, they had raised people like this from the dead. Paul does the same. This is, this is why the apostles were taken so seriously. That's why the church is an apostolic church. That's why in the post-apostolic period, all kinds of church officials wanted to be called apostles. Because these apostles were really taken very seriously. And, and you notice that the, the, the way in which it's told even shows us that the supernatural was part of an apostolic presence. So much so that the believers just took it for granted that this would happen when an apostle was there. It was just part of being around an apostle. And the other thing is to say that they hold these things in their proper perspective. Do you notice what Luke spends most of his time telling us? He spends most of his time telling us about this long talk that Paul gave before and then the long talk that Paul went on to give afterwards. I mean, if the people thought to themselves, great, somebody's died and been raised, now we can go home. <laughs> they, they were, it's a shame because Paul, having been outside, got a bit of fresh air, came back in, and he was rejuvenated. And he went on then till the morning, for goodness sake. He went on all night talking and teaching. Uh, that won't happen here. You see, this is part of the uniqueness. This is part of the essentials of Christianity. 
When the Apostle Paul is referring to these kind of signs and wonders, he refers to them as the signs or the marks of an apostle. Nobody today is an apostle like this. Nobody, no matter what they claim, because nobody's doing what they did. That's why their words don't get into the Bible. When Luke says he was there, and these people were there, they were eyewitnesses of what was done. And what was done, you see, is also a parable, because what was done demonstrates that the Word of God has life-giving power. What Paul is doing to this little this boy who, who falls to his death in raising him from the dead is in fact what the Word of God was doing all the time. All the time people were coming, coming alive spiritually, being built up spiritually, growing spiritually. The Word of God lives. It is dynamic. It is powerful. It accomplishes what it is sent out to do. The Word of God changes. It creates life. That's what the Word of God does wherever it's preached. And these miracles of the apostles merely are external demonstrations of what God is doing all the time. That's why Paul can write to the Romans about his message and say, the gospel, the gospel is the, is the dynamic power of God for the salvation of everybody who believes. You think raising a dead man is a great thing. You think that healing a sick man is a great thing, Paul says. Let me tell you, preaching the gospel whereby people come to faith in the Lord Jesus and are changed from, from being outside of Christ to being inside or transferred from darkness into light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, that is a demonstration of the power of God every bit as great as the resurrection of a dead man. That's what the Word of God does. We need to believe that the Word of God does that. You need to believe this. We've started these Christianity Explored courses, and Will is running them over in the Black Sheep. Great location. Great group of people there last week. And it's going on again this week. And it's posited on this principle. That if you just get people exposed to the Word of God, the Word will do its own work. We're not going to manipulate them. We're not going to get them to say anything, sing anything, sign anything, give anything. We're, we're, we're offering them the opportunity of just letting them see what the Word of God does. And it does its own work. You need to believe that. The Word of God accomplishes the will of God in the lives of people. Well, Eutychus wasn't the last one to fall asleep in church, but let me just put it like this. C.H. Spurgeon on one occasion said, Remember, if you go to sleep during this sermon and die, I'm talking to you. You go to sleep in this sermon and die, I can't do for you. I can't do for you what Paul did. I can't bring you back to life again. Sorry. You just have to take your chances. Keep away from the edge of the balcony, Sarah. Just don't, don't fall asleep, you guys, okay? Because I can't help you. Well, let me wind this up before I wind you up. Let me wind up the sermon this evening by saying this. There's other ways, of course, of falling asleep, not just physically falling asleep in church. This is usually, by the way, the way in which people handle this text. So I'm just showing you that I can do this stuff. The, the way it's usually handled is to spiritualize it, you see? But you can do that. You can play with it a little bit. And you can say, well, there are other ways to fall asleep other than just physically falling asleep. You can fall asleep mentally, can't you? And spiritually fall asleep because 
you don't take the word of God seriously. Or you've never been really awake spiritually. You've never really been switched on spiritually. Screwtape, the senior devil said to his trainee Wormwood, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You can just sleep your way to hell. And what I want to do this evening is to try and wake you up with the Word of God. I want to wake you up to consider, do you take seriously the things of God? Do you take seriously where you will be 10 million years from tonight? Can I tell you this? I know exactly where I will be 10 billion years from tonight. I will be more alive than I am at this moment. How do I know that? I know that because Jesus rose from the dead and he's given me his word and I bank my soul and my body and my planet and everything on his word. Do you do that? If you care for yourself, consider that. Consider it. Consider what God can do in your life. Well, in Romans chapter 13, verse 12, Paul says this. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And in Ephesians, Paul writes, Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please write your word on our hearts and fill us with the joy of the Lord. May it be our strength, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.